Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Darren Lewis of the Daily Mirror, and Miguel Delaney of The Independent. When Marcus Rashford speaks, governments listen. His words matter. His message is important. This was his reaction to being racially abused online at the weekend. Humanity and social media at its worst. Yes, I'm a black man, and I live every day proud that I am. No one, or no one comment, is going to make me feel any different. I'm not sharing screenshots. It would be irresponsible to do so, and as you can imagine, there's nothing original in them. I have beautiful children of all colours following me, and they don't need to read it. Beautiful colours that should only be celebrated. Darren, now, we've spoken endlessly about this problem. You've lived it. Since Rashford has a huge constituency, is it too much to hope that this is a tipping point? Sadly, Mike, I think it is, because I think that while Rashford is able to influence government policy, while his 4.1 million followers on Twitter and his 9.7 million followers on Instagram and his ability to navigate the broadcast and print media so adeptly enables him to get his message across in this country, this is a worldwide problem. This is a, an issue that bigger stars than Marcus Rashford have not been able to crack. It's not that difficult. That's the frustration. It's not that difficult. We've got a government who is able to suspend the account of the President of the United States and his attempts to get his message across everywhere but the lectern that he could have been using at the White House. Digitally, they shut him down. So we know it's not that difficult to do. They could write a line of code. They can produce an algorithm that prevents racist terms from appearing on their sites, but they don't want to do it. And I made the point on Sunday that when I tried to put, when I tried to access a clip of a Patrick Bamford goal within an hour of it being scored, it was gone. They'd removed it because broadcast rights to them are more important than human rights. When there's money in it, it matters. There is no money in the desire to combat racist abuse. That's why ordinary people are continuing to suffer from it day to day. You know, it's a depressing conclusion in many ways there, Darren. But Migs, if you look at it logically and simply, the social media companies surely need to be forced to trace abusers. And, and isn't it as deceptively simple as photo ID being required for any kind of social media comment? Well, I have to say, I can understand the rationale of that argument, but I just, I, I, can, I can never see, I think it's one of those logistical hurdles I can never see get on the, off the ground. I mean, I mean putting on a basic level, given, given we've just had a few years of debate about 
the use of Facebook, do people will people really be willing to give up their personal identification to a social media company? And the social media companies in turn know that will drastically hit numbers. I mean, again, which is depressing in itself, much of this debate comes down to, I mean, right down to what Darren is talking about in terms of shutting down copyright clips rather than racist comments. Much of this comes down to the numbers and income and the kind of the status of these companies. But it's it's why I, I just can't see that getting off the ground. And I think it's actually one of those cases where because in the current context, the, these comments and this abuse continues to run wild without control and it doesn't seem to be a an impetus from from the companies who can't stop it to do it because of the measures they can take they can take and b because they're not doing anything particularly new or different on it it's difficult for anyone else to do i do wonder is it one of those ones where the punishment will actually act as a deterrent and it's why more successful prosecutions could actually be the the answer to this and uh, and examples being made. But then, of course, what often happens in these cases, what I think we real or what we begin to see, it's depressingly, it ends up being a lot of young kids. I mean, we saw in the case of Ian Wright, where it was, just, it was a teenager once they eventually found him. Now, we are dipping into, I suppose, societal issues here way beyond football. I mean, I do, I do remember, to be fair, before lockdown, I was already working on a piece on increased use of racial abuse within stands, something that something that at least anecdotal information had suggested had gone up in the previous years. And I, I, you would wonder as well whether the, the absence of actual live support has meant even, as with almost everything else, we, we, we've seen it migrate online more as well. Yeah, well, you know, I think we are seeing the true extent of the problem since it is being concentrated online. I suppose the question to football is, Darren, what are you going to do about it? Because surely we can't repeat this endless cycle of outrage, promises, and then complete inaction. Well, I'm not, and I'm, I'm not going to choose my words carefully at all here because I've done that for far too, on far too many occasions on this issue. We keep seeing a cycle also of government ministers inviting footballers to Downing Street, sitting round tables, grandstanding, basically, and they achieve the square root of zero. Oliver Dowden's tough talk at the moment, I fear, is not going to result in anything substantive in terms of producing bills that have any impact on Twitter, on Instagram, companies that don't need to listen to government ministers who probably won't be in that position for very long. I think starstruck guys like him are good for a well. They're not good for a sound, but they are after a sound. But but I don't think they really care enough to actually force any kind of change, any substantive change. And the problem is money. If there is money in it, then there is an incentive to change. If there is not any money in it, then the social media companies do not care. And I think I'm a little bit with Mick, you know, Mike, in so much as. Initially, I did think, I did agree that the answer was giving passport details or some form of identification. But I've come round to the to the view that the solution isn't giving the big tech companies more of our personal identification. It isn't more giving them more of our data. It is about taking control. Me personally, I think the solution is in individual players taking private prosecutions against the people who are responsible for what's on their accounts. And in some cases, it might well be children. But if you then have to take action against parents so that they can have more of an influence on what their children send, then so be it. If you do what you always do, you'll get what you always get. I say this about racism inside football at the moment. And we saw that when the PSG players walked off the pitch, Suddenly, football had a different problem to contend with. They realised that footballers were serious about taking control of the situation in an era where they'd been let down on far too many occasions. I think that's the case with social media because I keep seeing people saying the social media companies have to do more. It's become the new racism has no place in football. People don't have specific examples of what they want the social media companies to do when the answer is very easy. Produce the algorithms, filter out the offensive content, 
work more quickly to ensure that when racist terms, when people attempt to put racist terms into social media, they are unable to do so. There are video games, video games, I'm showing my age here, but there are, you know, games that kids use at the moment where when you attempt to do that, it doesn't allow you to do that. There are groups on Facebook where when you try to put brand names in, you are not allowed to do that. What is that around? Money. <laughs> yeah, we can do this. It is possible to do this. And we have to somehow manoeuvre the social media companies into an era where they accept it is incumbent on them to do it. It's not enough for them to keep giving us these statements telling us they're committed and that uh, they take racism very seriously. It's got no place in our games. And they are turning around and allowing the same thing that they allowed last year, the year before, and the year before that. One thing we have learned, I feel, over the last year or so, there is an increased element of, of athlete activism, I suppose we can put it. You know, obviously it began with Raheem Sterling. Rashford has obviously taken that to another level. What sense are you getting from players, Miguel, about their attitude towards it? Because it's it's a daily occurrence now, and and they shouldn't be expected just to get on with their jobs. Well, I, I think that is interesting in this, and that there has been a definite shift. And as you say, as you alluded to there, I mean, if you think about even a year ago, it was one of those things where there was almost the attitude, and I'm sure a lot of players are the same, where it's just social media, just ignore it. Whereas now they're not ignoring it and they're trying to push back about it. And you you would hope and may, maybe think that uh, this this itself could start to have a bit of an effect over the short term where, again, even, I'll just say, to, to pick one example, if it, if, it, if it is kids in their room kind of stupidly mimicking, you know, phraseology they see elsewhere, they, they some might actually stop because players have started to speak out about it and examples have been made about it. And, and it's, it's, I suppose the optimistic take is maybe that this is one next step on the road to eradicating this. And so that, that has been a definitive shift to say, but, but as, as, as Darren says there, it's about actually taking tangible steps now, but awareness of it and constantly calling it out and even, even that distinctive shift in attitude. No, we're not just going to ignore this anymore. Is significant, I think. Uh, can I just jump in there? Because I think that, okay, some of the kids who are sending this are below the age of criminal responsibility. But I think if there are sanctions on their parents, and it is harsh, and it is horrible, but when you ask what players think, I interviewed Wilfred Zaha last year, and he told me that in the week that I'd interviewed him, he'd received 50 racist messages in excess of on his social media feed. And he was saying to him that it's got to the stage where some players are afraid to go into their direct messages because they're expecting it after uh, what somebody might term a bad game. And let's not kid ourselves. He had a bad game, I'm going to abuse him. It's just an excuse to be racist. And I think we... I've written about this for the Daily Mail and I've made this point. The sad truth about our sport, the industry we work in, is that with fans unable to go to games, this racism is flushing through the sewers of social media. Normally, this is the kind of thing that would be drowned up by 30,000, 40,000 or 50,000 people in a stadium. And we would delude ourselves that football doesn't have a problem with it, but it does. And now we're seeing it on social media, people jumping on with the emojis, with the racist terms, when players have bad games. And it's really important that we don't just frame this as Marcus Rashford had it, has it, has had it, so it's a problem, you know, because Cyrus Christie a couple of years ago, Christian Cabaselli at Watford, Troy Deeney at Watford, Pogba, Lukaku, they all have, they've all had it, they're all getting it, they all continue to get it. It will not be the case that it will stop just because there have been a couple of days of headlines. That's the truth about what we're dealing with at the moment. I, I don't think there is any... We reached a tipping point with this, guys, two, three years ago, and nothing was done then. Nothing will be done now. 
I, I'm sorry to be so pessimistic, but nothing will be done now. We can't kid ourselves that because we're stamping our feet at the moment and raising these issues that they will have any more desire to change it than they did last year. What will change it is when financial revenue, when, when revenue streams are potentially affected, that's when they move. But when there's no money in it, black people do not matter to big tech companies. Okay, then. Well, let's look at it this way. Is it time for increased militancy from the players themselves? In other words, black players get into the 10th minute of a game and they all walked off the pitch. That, you know, something like that would work because when people then start to ask why they're doing it, they'll say in protest at the media companies where you're reading this, that are hosting this. You know, when the media companies get that level of embarrassment, as I said before, you know, they the media companies were shamed into having to act after the act of insurrection inspired by Donald Trump because everybody looked at the role that they played in it. When black footballers with huge commercial power, monster social media following, and not just black players either, influential black figures who can send their messages out far and wide. It's all very good Twitter virtue signaling when Amanda Gorman speaks at the inauguration or Joe Biden takes over and makes calls for unity and decency. But when they have to play their part, their part they don't want to do that. And so you're right, if there was an act across countries as well, maybe in other, you know, in the US, across Europe, players all got together and said, you know what? This is a worldwide gesture that we are going to make direct at the social media companies and say, why are you claiming to listen to us, but in practice, ignoring our cries for help? Because we cannot be in 2021 and have a situation still where black men are going to work and are living, I wouldn't say in the fear, but in the knowledge that if they put one foot wrong, someone will use it as an excuse to racially abuse them. Just coming in on what, on what Darren's saying there, I suppose, I mean, given that before games, we, we, we still have the BLM gesture. I mean, the, the climate is right for some sort of protest like that as well now. I mean, and there's been, I suppose there's been a lot of talk about taking the next step from that and turning it into activism. I mean, I, I was just thinking as Darren was talking there, uh, I suppose it is one of those things where the play, if there were to be some sort of protest like that, the players would need to agree on some sort of strategy in terms of even because there's all sorts of complications, of course, about what game is used, whether you know a, a, a competition suffers rather than a social media company. But certainly, there's 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 a climate for it in 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 in, in Holland when a player, a lower league player, was racially abused. Players across the divisions, they refused to, I think it was the second or third minute of a match, they refused to play. Here in England, I know that they've talked about a widespread activism among players in America. They took action in a variety of sports after Jacob Blake was killed by police. So lots of different countries have had situations where they have staged their protests if they were to come together and to stage a collective protest, it would be such a powerful statement towards the companies that are very, very good at saying the right thing, but abysmal and actually doing it. Yeah, and I, th you know, the bottom line on all of this is that we're dealing with human beings, flesh and blood. Now, in the case of Rashford, Miggs, how remarkable is it that he's able to put his football in one compartment and his activism in another. I think it's incredible that his form has held up in the way that he has. Oh yeah, completely. I mean, and I did notice there was there was almost a little bit of really unfair debate about this a few weeks ago, where even the kind of suggestion, oh, at some point this, his form is going to suffer. Well, I mean, the reality is no one knows that. A, Every player basically reacts in different different way. This could this could well be as much as anything, his his best way of of it's almost therapeutic for him after games or after training for, because of course the, the the true benefit of it. And I, I mean, I think it would actually be. I think it's one of those things as well where it would be unfair and almost 
and unhelpful to to try and kind of collate the two, if you get me. Where we we should we should be seeing his his activism as completely separate from 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 his game, and he and he's certainly proven proven he's capable of of doing each to uh, a usually successful degree, independent of each other. Yeah, because if you if you think about it, and it's it's quite. It's quite nice to actually talk about football now, but how critical do you think he will be actually on the pitch for Manchester United in the second half of this season, Darren? Because they don't seem to have got the balance of that attack right, do they? No, they don't. I mean, the irony, and I'm going to commit heresy here, but the the, the irony of, of Saturday was that Rashford, I'd, I was at the game, and, and he didn't play that well, uh, and his decision-making wasn't as good as it has been in the past. And... I mean, I'm going to dip a little bit into back into what we were saying. In so much as I felt a lot of sympathy for him because he was playing on the right side. He's not comfortable there. He's a far, far better off the left. Anthony Martial was completely ineffective, and sometimes it was just what you know. You have one of those days, and he had one of those days. And it was when I was driving home from the game, and I heard a few fans coming on to to the radio complaining about Rashford, and I just thought at that point. Oh, here we go again. I bet you any money he is the latest player to get it. And lo and behold, he was. And that, that's the sign of our times. But in terms of the second half of the season, I think he will be important because he does have that potency. He does have that ability to get in behind defensive defences. United do have that poor record against the top six sides where they're winless. They've only scored one goal. That was a consolation. But against the sides lower down the table... They've got a very good record away from home. They've got an outstanding record, a record-breaking record, if that's grammatically correct. I'm sure you can edit that one out. Um, um, but the, the problem for me overall with United, I'm sure Miggs will agree with this, is that I still don't think they've got that title-winning mentality in the squad. Twice now in the last few weeks, they've had opportunities to put Liverpool, who were weakened at the time, to the sword. And on Saturday, Arsenal who were weakened to the sword. No Tierney, no Saka, no Aubameyang. They were there for the taking and United couldn't take them. And Liverpool, who looked out and out for the count and, and looked to be falling like a stone, they're back in it now. City are more consistent, defensively stronger, winning games without strikers in some case. I still take City or Liverpool to fight this out now. United are going to have to wait for another year because they're just not consistent enough. They've not beaten any of the top six since last March, have they? Is that a sign of a lack of quality or attitude? I do wonder with it. I mean, because this, this is one thing that's cropped up with Solskjaer, actually, time and again, since he's taken over. And, and it usually it's a sign of a, of a developing team in that regard, where as soon as you solve one issue, another one comes up. Because just over a year ago, one of the issues with United was they were good in these big games and they could counter-attack, but then that, that, caused, that caused them to struggle against lesser teams. Whereas now we had the, the inverse of that. And I and I and I do. T- I would say almost. I mean, I'd say half of it's a little bit of coincidence, but not completely. Obviously, and half of it is that he's trying to develop their style. One now is better suited to games against the rest, and one is causing them to not quite get the balance right against the top teams. But just allied to what um, Darren was saying there, just in terms of kind of their title credentials, I I, I do think there's some way off for the moment. But even as regards Rashford and the rest of the attackers, one of the concerns I've I have with United at the moment is in so in all Solskjaer's time so far, there's been two tendencies. One of them has been to to go through streaks, which is basically runs of wins followed by runs of bad results, and it's it's why Saturday was actually quite important with that regard. And we don't know yet whether a nil all draw is kind of consolidating or whether it's you know another run where they're not getting wins. And another one another one of those trends has been where suddenly it's as if the players suddenly suffer burnout after a few months because almost they've been running to the ground. That happened a few months into his first spell when he, shortly after he took over from, from uh, Mourinho in March and April, they, after the PSG results, they basically fell off a cliff. It happened last season. And then, of course, it was the, the, the long break. And then they, well, they signed Bruno as well, to be fair. And then it happened towards the end of Project Restart where they just about held it together. It hasn't happened yet this season, but I suppose one of the big tells of Solskjaer's time is whether it happens again. But but again, linked to that is, it still feels like they're a team too dependent on individualism rather than having a, a coherent, cohesive idea like City do, like Liverpool do. 
and it, and it means they're always going to dependent on one attacker stepping up. Well, if suddenly two or three of them are just maybe not off their best, because suddenly Marshall's suffering a bit of a... Well, he's, he's been one of the most criticised players over the short term. Rashford ha- has been very good, although it wasn't at his best on Saturday. And Bruno hasn't scored for five games. Cavani suddenly looks the sharpest, although he missed that chance on Saturday. But if that happens, then suddenly United might get into a few issues. So it's why I actually think this is going to be quite a fascinating period for them. When you when you look at you know, Bruno Fernandes as, as a case, in, in to take your point, Migs, why you know it, it, it's obvious when you just look at him that he's he's he's, he's, he's exhausted. He, should, he, he needs to be taken out of the firing line. So in that case, why is Donny Van der Beek being completely overlooked? I don't get that at all. Do you know, I, I, I was sitting up in the Arsenal stands, uh, in, in press box rather, and Donny van der Beek was six rows, six, seven rows in front of me, uh, sitting by himself, obviously, social distancing and all that. And he actually, he, he looked okay. He didn't look to be particularly angry or upset or anything like that. And I found myself thinking, why aren't you more upset? Why aren't you more frustrated? Why aren't you more angry? I mean, Cavani hadn't played for months and came in, got fit, and is playing regularly. Van der Beek had do, been doing superbly well for Ajax. You know, when he left and, and, and came to Manchester United, you know, they said that message in on social media, look after him. We've hardly seen him in relative terms. And sometimes, I, I know a few people are saying this about Bale and, 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 and at Spurs, sometimes you've got to be banging on the manager's door and saying, why am I not playing? What's going on? If you don't want to play me, let me go back to my former club or let me go. But I cannot be sitting in the stands for matches like this, particularly big matches. He's too good a player. So if United don't rate him, you know, send him back. But it is very, very curious to see that as being the case and Fernandez being a guy that they are basically pushing into the red zone. And given how uninspiring United are when Fernandez doesn't play, it's a worry that they are playing him as often as they are. They are, I, I agree with Migs, they are a team too reliant on individuals rather than the efficient unit that City are and that Liverpool are at their best. Mm, they've got a, a record 18 away games unbeaten in the Premier League. What are the underlying reasons for their poor home form, do you think, Migs? You know, if you look at it, they've got a chance, a good chance, to get back on track at Old Trafford against Southampton on Tuesday. Do you think they'll take it? I'm certainly not that confident in them at all. I mean, again, this has been another trend of the season, not unique to United, where teams go through very distinctive runs. And having two weeks ago, I would have said, yeah, United, they're in sort of form where they're getting all these wins, whereas now... Having had that disrupted, Southampton exactly the sort of side that caused the problems. Now, Southampton themselves have been on one of those runs, given that they've won one game since they briefly went top of the table. And that seems to be happening throughout this season to so many different sides. In terms of the United's home record, I think it's partly the effect of crowds and partly I still think it's a little bit of a coincidence that's going to level out as time goes on. Just the way, just the way these things work. But... I mean, I don't want to call that a 50-50 game, given United have so much more quality than Southampton. But I think it's going to be a very awkward fixture. And, and, and again, one that's, that's quite revealing. United are actually going to do need a win now. Not, not just because of where they are in the table and whether they're in a title race or whether they're not in a title race, but for that exact reason I mentioned, where if they don't win it for the third game in a row, we're suddenly into another one of those streaks and something that has come up time and time again with Solskjaer's time. Yeah, Manchester City... By contrast, club record 12 wins on the bounce. Darren, Ruben Diaz he strikes me as a, as a leader, almost the new Vincent company. Is he a title-winning signing, do you think? Yes, in a word, because since they've signed him, they've looked defensively more stable. He's got that leadership. He inspires players around him. He's made John Stones a better player. There are a number of areas where he has improved their defensive capability. The interesting thing about the comparisons with the company, a lot of people have made them. I remember being at the game against Southampton and Pep Guardiola was very, very keen to pour cold water in them. He said company wasn't just a leader at in defence, but he was a symbol of the club. He, he, he was a, a, there were so many bigger areas in which he was so influential and it's 
unfair to Diaz to compare him to company. But you're right, when a player comes in and has such a transformative effect, you have no option but to compare him with the last player who had that kind of effect. And Diaz is somebody, when you look at the numbers, you can see why people are making those comparisons. 12 wins now in a row for the first time in their history. I had to double check that one because I was like, that, that can't be right. But but it but it is right. Twelve wins in a row for the first time in their history. And if if you look at the, I think it's eleven clean sheets out of the last thirteen. The last goal they conceded from open play was against Porto in October. I mean the the numbers are ridiculous. And last season they scored three or more goals on seventeen occasions. And it was the front three or the front six that we were gushing about. Now it's the back five because they can win this title without being anywhere near as spectacular, but so defensively compact that you have to give them credit where it's due. Cancelo deserves a special mention as well. John Stones has had that renaissance as well, and that's all down to his hard work, according to Guardiola in that press conference at Southampton. But Diaz, he's had a really transformative effect on that back five, including the keeper. And they... We asked, didn't we, when he signed his new deal, could Guardiola rebuild City? He'd inherited so many players from his predecessors. Could he do it himself, find the players that would take them on to the next level? Well, he's doing it because they're building from the back. If, for argument's sake, they get a Erling Haaland once Aguero leaves, as we expect at the end of the season, you've got to sit a team maybe that could dominate for the next three or four years. Yeah, well, most immediately they're at Burnley on Wednesday, which is, I, su- <laughs> Plus I suppose... Plus you to bring us back down to it. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind yeah, that. Well, I suppose it's, the, it's the modern equivalent of can you do it on a wet Wednesday in Stoke, isn't it, that yeah. one? <laughs> Migs, do, do you think it's a sign of their dominance that probably City are the only team to consistently overwhelm Burnley? Yeah, probably, yeah. And, and also I think maybe an extension of how Guardiola plays, particularly when City are at their best because they are one specific team that are capable of kind of just the way they move the ball means they can pull those sort of defences apart and create those openings. But but just touching, elaborating on that and touching on something that Darren said just there, I think what's particularly interesting about this city and more interesting to kind of Guardiola's whole career was obviously, with basically every Guardiola title winning side going right back to Barca through Bayern and it's two so far Man City. There's been a real sense of the spectacular about every single one of them. Whereas this team, and, and I, don't, I don't mean this as a criticism, it doesn't really have that sense of spectacular. It's the opposite. It's almost his, just his most kind of solidly functional title-challenging team in that regard, where they don't quite have the, the, the magic of previous sides, bar De Bruyne or, and, and obviously Sterling. But there's just something more re- resolute about them. They're kind of just getting... Getting through it sounds sounds disparaging. I don't mean it in that sense, but they just have that kind of that resilience now, and it's almost like it's it, it's a little bit like when Ferguson would win a title in one of his off years. Yeah. What about Chelsea, Darren? Obviously, you know they overcame Burnley on Sunday. What's your early report card for Tuchel? You know he's obviously sifting through his options at the moment. Yeah. Well, I, 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 we're recording this on deadline day, and I'm sure a few other clubs will sift through the options that he doesn't fancy as well uh, ahead of the deadline. But listen, the early uh, report card I would say is that there is a realism about the way he's going about his business. He's seen what's happened to managers in the past, and he's been very open about the fact that he's aware that if he's not competing, his job will be under threat. Uh, he is aware that he doesn't have a long-term project given expenditure at the club. He's aware that they want to get the best out of the big players that they signed that Lampard wasn't quite able to unlock. Now, to be fair to Lampard, you can't really judge him too harshly after half a season. You know, you look at Tongi and Dumbele for the whole of his first season and a half. He, he, he just wasn't anywhere near the play he had been at Lyon. And suddenly now you look at him play, he's a much happier player at Spurs. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a much more impactful player. And clearly Werner and Havertz will be better for time at Chelsea. But in terms of the way that they went their business about against Burnley, Burnley, of course, had been off the back of two superb results, coming back to win against Aston Villa, beating Liverpool. Chelsea were efficient. 
they were organized that I was at the first game and the numbers are off the chart in terms of the distances covered. I know lots of people not that impressed by the number of passes, so I won't go too far on that. But the desire of the players to impress him and to get into his plans early doors looks good, bodes well. And I can see Chelsea taking a hand in the race for the top four. Not the title, but the race for the top four and maybe even the Champions League. When you look at it, Migs, Winners and losers so far. I suppose if you're looking at winners, as Piliqueta, who's emerged as the great survivor, Kellen Hudson-Odoi, Kovacic perhaps. In losers, Chilwell, James, who let's let's not forget are probably England's first choice fullbacks at the moment or wingbacks. What's your view on that? On that, you know, who's who's actually who's most benefit from it? Well, Kellen Hudson-Odoi is obviously the big one. To be fair, I know I know people kind of reacted negatively for Chilwell yesterday. But I, I actually would put, I, I don't think just this was just kind of like, you know, a media comment or a deflection or like that. I think it was genuinely true from Tuchel where he said, we, we, we want to give everyone a chance to impress and, and see, see how we go. And I suppose, so there's a sense about him working out his players and also wor- working out who works best in specific variations of what seems a very clear system for him. Because unlike Lampard, he, he does seem to have a very defined system that he has for this team going into this job. Now, I know, I think it's unhelpful to everyone and unfair to compare, you know, what Tuchel does to what Lampard did as we go on. But for the moment and from the opening two games, it's almost impossible to ignore, particularly given kind of the input of some of those players on Sunday. I mean, Hudson, as you mentioned there, he was one player who, who Lampard kind of had a strange football relationship with by the end where he seemed almost reluctant to use him. And then, of course, the most obvious one of all is Alonso, given he hadn't played since he was bombed out after that three-all draw with West Brom. He immediately comes back and scores. But I, I do think for the, for the next few games, it is going to be a case of Tuchel. I, I, like, I wouldn't read too much into any player being dropped or being used so far just, just because Tuchel is working out what's best for the team. And I, and I do think variety is going to be a real virtue of Chelsea's going into the into their home straight. And, it, and it's one reason, I think, why they could be so dangerous coming to the end of the season because that sort of variety is probably the correct use of what I think is the strongest squad in European football. And that could have a real influence in a season like this. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna find out a few things I suspect on Thursday when they play Spurs on both sides. Darren, did we see at Brighton in that abject performance the reality of Jose Mourinho? <laughs> um, I think what we saw in that game was the result of a lack of investment at centre-half, something that Spurs have needed to do for a long time and are now paying the price for not addressing. I think if Mourinho is honest, he will admit that there are areas that maybe he could tweak. I don't like this doom and gloom around the fact that Kane isn't around, given that they brought in Vinicius, a guy who's got a good rec scoring record. You could argue that he hasn't had enough minutes. Uh, you're only going to be able to get into goal-scoring form if you get the minutes to integrate yourself into the first-team picture. And I don't think he's had anywhere near. I see him coming on some games for three and four minutes at the end of matches which for me is baffling. You can't play Kane in as many games as you do when you've got a Venetius there who could pick up the slack. And, I, you know, the, the message that it sends out, and I hear ex-pros saying this, you know, when it's all doom and gloom because Kane isn't around, you're saying, well, the rest aren't really up to it. When the club have won games without Kane under Pochettino on a number of occasions across several seasons... But it's central defence that's the problem. Alderweireld and Vertonghen were fantastic way back. Vertonghen's, so yeah, Vertonghen's now gone. Alderweireld is still there, but nowhere near the player he used to be. Spurs have needed to invest in two centre-halves for a long time, and they haven't done it. And the reason why they've had problems, guys, in recent seasons is because when Pochettino cried out for investment, he didn't get it. Then he left and Mourinho got it, and everyone was happy. But if they'd invested 
in the, the defence that had made Tottenham the toughest team to beat in the early days of Mourinho, they wouldn't have these problems now. As it is, I can't see them finishing in the top four. Liverpool, by contrast, they, they too had an unfamiliar team out, didn't they, on Sunday at West Ham. But the excellence was really familiar, wasn't it, Migs? Yeah, I mean, just the quality of those goals. That's what really stood out. And you suddenly a team that looked... And, and the difference from even a week ago when they played Burnley... Just a team that suddenly looked on confidence again. Now, I suppose it was the nature of the season, you're suddenly reluctant to get too far ahead of ourselves because I thought very similar about Liverpool to how I did after yesterday's win against West Ham when they played Palace and beat them 7-0 and thought, wow, they look back on it, this was incredible. And like that game, there was maybe a little bit more uncertainty in the first half before they got the goal and really kicked on. But given the spell they've just been through and that swift transformation, I think that's what that's what's especially encouraging about it. And it, and it, it does feel right now that we're going to see some something which people have suspected throughout this season, but that has kind of wavered a few times as a possibility, which is basically ultimately that Liverpool and City fight it out for a title again. And the gap seems quite significant right now, but in real terms and in historic terms, it's not that much, especially given say, if Liverpool win on Sunday, then we could really have a title race. That's suddenly becoming a very, very interesting game again. Yeah, the hype will be off the charts for that, won't it, Darren? (laughs) And it will finish Um, (laughs) nil-nil. Now, I've got to tell you, my last two games have been nil-nil. Arsenal, uh, Man United and Chelsea Wolves. So I I can see this one being hyped up to Wazoo and I, I think it might well end up being two teams playing far too much respect to each other. I think whatever happens in that game, Liverpool are back to be entitled contenders and the fact that they're looking to do two deals, not one. You know, Liverpool are so decisive in the transfer market. When they needed a keeper, they got one. When they needed a high-class centre-back in Van Dijk, they got one. They've got the decisiveness that Spurs just don't have. And that's why I think if they do get these two deals over the line, Kaletasar and Davis from Preston, they're back in business. And at the very least, they've got that depth once Van Dijk is fit again beyond this season to be able to reclaim their position at the top. But whatever happens, I think these now are the two teams that are going to fight out the title. The others, Leicester's defeat really did surprise me, but that maybe suggests that they don't have the depth to be able or the consistency to hang in there with the two big dogs. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, you are talking early on on um, deadline day. You know, I suppose, Darren, you know, we were old enough to remember the old Liverpool boot room tradition of yes. going going in, into the lower leagues, haven't we? And, you know, £2 million pounds for, for Ben Davis strikes me as a brilliant punt, if nothing else. Well, I mean, the stories about him are, are already hugely encouraging. Loan spells where he didn't know colleagues and went and started bawling people out because winning to him cares. I think Liverpool will be looking at aspects of that around his character as much as they'll be looking at his technical ability because you have to have that desire, that work rate, that determination, that leadership ability if you're going to go into a side with so many stars like Liverpool. And so uh, there is a lot to, to like about him. Duja Caleta, I mean, he's been in a side that had been competing for the title until recently where they've dropped off. Now they've got an outside chance for a top four place, but his ability is there. And I think in both cases, these won't be players that Liverpool have picked out of a hat or will have looked at over the last few days and thought, maybe, maybe not. Michael Edwards and the team there will have done their homework from a long time ago. I know you know guys who, these kind of guys from your work and your knowledge and your relationships with the scouts, Mike, so you will know far more about this than I do. But I know that Liverpool as a football club do their homework. They will know about Kaletasar. They will know what he brings to the table. They will know all about his ability to cope with the rigours of the Premier League and the difficulties of competing against high-class opponents in this division, in this country as well. I think they'll be both good signings for the club. Yeah, it doesn't look as though the uh, the shirt's going to be too heavy, certainly for Davis. Meg, so Liverpool, uh, they've got a little bit of respite, perhaps. They're at home to Brighton on Wednesday. I don't know about you, but I got the distinct impression that that win over Spurs pretty much was a decisive victory in the whole relegation dogfight. They're now seven points ahead of Fulham. Fulham basically, did did Fulham-West Brom 
cut their own throats essentially on on Saturday in drawing with one another. There was a little bit of that, and it, and it also felt more harmful to Fulham in that way. Given I know the points gap isn't too great, and their situation not that different, but it feels like Fulham have a stronger team than than West Brom, and have much more about them, and have I think in the long run would have a much greater chance of staying up with Allardyce basically, or Allardyce's record in history, basically the only great differential there and the only great hope for West Brom. So in that sense, it feels like it could be really costly to Fulham. I think Brighton's win is significant and just in that gap it opens, but I suppose the very nature of the bottom in, the, in that sense is that gaps can evaporate quite quickly because wins are much less, or they, they come around much less often. So if any team suddenly gets two, it drastically changes the complexion in a way that doesn't happen at the top. And Fulham did suggest that that might be possible at the turn of the year when you're getting those great performances and results against the likes of Liverpool and, and Chelsea. Although they didn't beat Chelsea, but the performance is really good. So I wouldn't say it's decisive yet, but it does give Brighton such breathing space, given maybe the, a, a, a few concerns had been seeping in. But it's got, I mean, I have to say, I haven't watched some of their games this season. Just in terms of pure performance, I know there's something said all the time about Brighton, but it is true when you when you when you go and watch them, and the same is true for for Fulham to a degree. But I think both have familiar problems just in terms of scoring goals. They just feel much better than their current positions. Mm. West Brom are at Sheffield United, Darren. Losers of that one definitely down, aren't they? You, <laughs> I I at first I would have said no because I still feel that when you look at the performances at Sheffield United and Guardiola expressed that incredulity that Sheffield United are where they are given the fact that they fought so furiously against them at the weekend. It does look a forlorn hope. I mean, what doesn't help any of the bottom three is that Brighton, Burnley and Newcastle all had decent results at the weekend because they are now seven points clear of the bottom three. So Sheffield United would have to win, what, my math is terrible. So four games, is it? to even have a chance without the others winning at all. Now, there are a lot of games left. And to be fair, I think they've lost eight games by a single goal, Sheffield United. So they've been unfortunate in some respects, but they'll keep fighting. I think both teams are already down. I think what Fulham need to do if they are not to join them is to win more matches and stop throwing games away from advantageous positions, but my fear for West Brom and Sheffield United, Mike, is that it, it, it's a bridge too far for both. Yeah, I think with Newcastle, you could have seen them slipping into trouble because that's a, such an emotionally driven club. They basically drive off the road on fairly regular occasions, don't they? That win at Everton, Miggs, do you think that was a job saver for Steve Bruce? I would say job saver just because of the way that Ashley has run the club. And I think it would take something truly perilous in terms of their Premier League status from to from to do that. But it did just give the, a lot like with Brighton, it gave them such a cushion. Especially when you as you say there, they wouldn't necessarily have expected it. But that's almost that kind of points to what I'm saying, I suppose, with Brighton and Fulham. Like in terms of general like Newcastle probably do have more quality than well maybe significantly more quality, especially when they've got a player like Callum Wilson than than teams like Fulham or Brighton or Sheffield United. Yeah, whereas their performances have felt good and almost as if they're kind of playing above themselves because of a positive approach, Newcastle felt as if they're playing beneath themselves. <laughs> and and that, that, I have to say, there have been times over the past few weeks that, well, Brighton and Fulham deserve to stay up and Newcastle deserve to go down just for the way they're playing. Yeah, the, the points, uh, say, or, or maybe connected to that, the resources, say very differently. Mm. Interesting, if you look at, yeah, Wolves are at home to Arsenal on Tuesday. They've had no wins in eight league games, Darren. They need to arrest that slide, don't they? They do, and it's hard to see how they're going to do it. Defensively, they're all over the place at the moment. They always seem to have a mistake in them. Offensively, they brought in William Jose, but he's going to need to go on a fantastic run because they look like a side shorn of morale more than anything else. I think the Raul Jimenez injury affected them far more than we thought it would do. And and I've heard it said that if Nuno were not as popular 
as he is. And obviously he's got the very influential George Mendes with his connections with the club. Perhaps he would be under more pressure than he actually is. It could well be that they're just in the kind of form that lots of clubs in the Premier League have found themselves in at one stage or another and come out the other side. But he does need a result and very, very quickly, if anything, just to improve morale. Yeah. Uh, with Arsenal, Migs, I would think it's probably taken as well. They, they need Saka back. Looking at Tierney, you know, he's become an inspirational player there, but are his injuries becoming a bit of a concern? No, well, for the moment, no. I think if this persists for another year or maybe another few months, then it's something to think about. It, it, it could just be kind of a quirk or a knock-on at the moment. But, I mean, I, 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 like Darren, I was at the game on Saturday, and I was really close to the United bench. One of the most interesting moments of the game. I, I actually th I thought it was a, a better game than the nil-all suggested, I have to say. But one of the most interesting moments was there, was in the first half. I think it was on Cedric, when after Rashford had, had just taken him on and, he, and Cedric just had a booking. Although it might have been Martinelli as well. But either way, it points to the kind of susceptibility down that side without Turney. But Solskjaer basically just shouted at Rashford and went, Marcus, he cannot defend. He cannot defend. Take him on if he wants. <laughs> Which is much as anything. It was interesting to get that bit of insight. And from, like, from a journalist's perspective, it's still a novelty when you actually hear it at that level. <laughs> but it does point to their susceptibility without Tierney. And of course, they were missing Saka and Aubameyang. But the one thing I have to say, I think, I think there is a wider point to be made about Arsenal here, which is to Arteta's credit, which is the way he got them out of that what was essentially this kind of death rattle. Like, as we've seen now with Lampard and Chelsea, at other clubs, it's basically looked terminal for managers' time once they get into that. It's been a, almost a, a feature of modern football in that it's much more difficult to work your, your, work your way out. Whereas he managed that because they suddenly look just like, okay, there's still issues in that team. But once again, they look at kind of a competent, difficult side to play, which is a drastic transformation from what they were in early December when they were basically a laughing stock. It'd be interesting to see how Arteta handles the, or balances the competition or incipient competition between Odegaard and Emil Smith-Rowe, who actually is probably the symbol of their recent improvement. Darren, Miggs mentioned you know, the fact that you can hear everything now when you go to games. Can you give the listeners an impression of how informative that is? It is quite informative because you hear interactions between players and the referee, players and each other. I remember being at Chelsea and seeing Edouard Mendy in his first, one of his first games communicating with the back four in French was quite fascinating given that Azcapilicueta is Spanish and Ben Chilwell, as far as I can understand, isn't multilingual. <laughs> and so that, that was quite fascinating. I remember... Rob Holding being booked for a challenge on a defender whose name I can't quite recall and him turning to the referee and saying, why are you booking me? He's booked like a like a brick outhouse. Well, he didn't say out, but I'm sure you know <laughs> what I mean. Uh, and the, inter you know, so you hear the frustration between players. You hear, as Miggs was saying, the kind of unflattering things that managers are saying up to players about opposition players, you see, you hear the negative stuff. Of course, we had that incident with Adebayo Akinfenwa earlier this season where a member of coaching staff at an opposing team had been very, very derogatory towards him. You hear so much more tactically. You hear the players that and the teams that talk to each other, defenders that do, and you hear those that don't even more specifically. For us as journalists in press boxes... It's very, very instructive to be in games covering them during this period because it isn't just about what we're seeing. It's very, very much about what we're hearing too. Yeah, I'm, I'm told that... You know, I've not seen Liverpool, but I'm told you know, that Jordan Henderson is just in, incessant and you know, with his encouragement and with his observations, which you know I suppose puts captaincy into perspective, doesn't it? I just want to end, guys, by looking... You know, we we started on quite a sombre negative note, didn't we? Can we try and accentuate the positive side of the game? Is there anything in the game at the moment that gives you hope? 
Migs. I was actually just thinking about writing a piece on it before we came on, but... Do you, do you we always give you your, your best ideas. I know, don't it, we? Is, it is one of the great things that come on the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> you asked to come on yeah. this week, didn't you? <laughs> but but do, do you remember when, um, when Project Restart was first mooted around May, or sorry, end of April last year, or mid-April or whatever it was, and one of the arguments was that it would be a, a necessary diversion for people at a usually difficult time. And that, it didn't really pan out in the same way because by summer last year, you know, the the COVID figures had fallen and there was at least an element of normality because pubs were open, people could go outside, all the rest of it. Whereas now, that actually feels true. I mean, it, uh, again, this, this is only kind of a, you know, small sample or anecdotal evidence. But if you, if you go on social media at the moment or even, you know, look at media, there's so many articles or comments about how I think people are really struggling at the moment, or sorry, a lot of people are, really, are struggling just with the kind of, because there's, there's very little to do in life. It's, it, it's January, it's cold, we're in lockdown. For, I think for, I've seen so many people make comments like every day is the same, I've got work and then I've got nothing else. But then as a connection to that, you see so many people say, football is the one thing getting me through it. And, and while there, there, there is so much to complain and criticise and kind of, you know, the big show that big football is, the way it's it's never ending, how, how consuming it is. At the moment, it is it's exactly what it was billed as in April. It's I think a very necessary diversion, people, and something for people to to invest their emotions in at a time when there genuinely isn't too much else. And and that and that speaks, of course, that touches on all sorts of bigger issues of football uh, or wider issues, which is kind of the social value of the sport. And what it actually means to people, and that shouldn't be f- forgotten in all the criticisms we have for the game. Yeah, I'd agree with that. What about you, Darren? Well, I know you've only got a couple of minutes left, so I'll be very brief. But I've got three things. One of them is Ben Davis, because it gives hope to young players in the lower leagues that if you work hard, you can still get your rewards. Not many people had heard of Ben Davis. They know all about the other one, of course. That. Tottenham Hotspur but not this Ben Davis who'd been working so hard at Preston for so long and we thought the age of players being plucked from the championship to go and be big stars at the top six had gone but clearly that's not the case with this deal. The other is West Ham. I know you are very unable to conceal your contempt for the owners but just and that's fair enough but just in terms of a small club a smallish club in relation to the teams around them, managing to hold their position in amongst the big six. And more specifically, David Moyes, a good guy, good man, who is reinventing himself after so many difficult lows at Sociedad and Manchester United and people doubting him after the hard work he'd done at Everton to go and re-establish his reputation as being a shrewd transfer market operator, good tactician, and to to help a, a club to fulfil their potential or to make a few steps towards it. It's a wonderful story. And the last thing is Nuno, £250,000 donation to the homeless in Wolverhampton. Football doesn't matter anywhere near as much as we think it does. I know Miggs is absolutely right to say, to underline the importance of it to people in these difficult times. But outside the bubble of football, there are still people struggling to live and for Nuno to make that donation, to recognise that, it's a wonderful thing. And that does give me hope. Yeah, I must admit, you know, that was the the one thing that, that struck me over the last week. I suppose, you know, one of the great things about football is the emotional connection it offers fans, players and, whisper it, managers. And you know, Nuno lifted my spirits and that of many others by donating that £250,000. You know, sure, he can probably afford it, but that misses the point. Here's a man who's come to a new country and an unfamiliar city, but he's seen what the football club means to the people and he understands the difficulties of daily life. So he's given something back in return. I think that's fantastic. Hope you too as well. In the meantime, thanks to Darren and Miguel and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.